This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from Citizen. Isn't it time you saw the light? Citizen makes watches that are powered by light, any light, and will never need a battery. So stay on time with Citizen's collection of Echo Drive watches. They're for just about everyone who prefers to be on time. Visit citizenwatch.com podcast for more. That's citizenwatch.com podcast. We use them every day to learn, design, and strategize. Dry erase boards and now glass marker boards are must-haves in every stage of life. For the visual display products you need and the quality of service you deserve, U.S. Marker Board is the place to go. A full-service shop with a highly trained staff, U.S. Marker Board is able to handle any request, no matter how large or small. Visit usmarkerboard.com today and use the promo code KICK to get 12% off your next order. Again, that's usmarkerboard.com and promo code KICK for 12% off. Come see what U.S. Markerboard can do for you. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. It's no ordinary thing when America's generally low-key intelligence community decides to take an increasingly public profile and its typically cautious leadership starts making the rounds on cable news shows. But then, these are no ordinary times. And for the first time in their history, CIA, NSA, and an alphabet soup of agencies comprising the IC find themselves under attack not from a hostile foreign government, but from a hostile president the very commander-in-chief they advise and serve. For the men and women who guard America's secrets and provide her first line of defense, President Trump's unprovoked and wholly unfounded vilification of the IC is more than just a personal vendetta. It's dangerous. No one understands this better than General Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA and NSA, who's been at the forefront of those standing up for the IC, and expressing grave concerns about the president's behavior. He lays out his case in his latest book, titled The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Today, General Hayden returns to the podcast to refute the president's paranoid narrative of a so-called deep state operating in the shadows and explain the lasting impact of a damaged relationship between the intelligence community and their commander-in-chief. He reveals what career intelligence agents tell him about that current relationship, including dealing with Trump's singular obsession with the CIA, tailoring the daily intelligence briefing to a president with zero attention span, and why the constant refrain among intelligence leaders who interact with him is, do you think he got that? General Hayden acknowledges that for much of the past two decades, Russia just really wasn't on the intelligence community's radar, talks about the lasting effect of the IC's decision to focus their efforts on cyber instead of information dominance, and reveals how one analyst saw early warning signs two years before the 2016 election. He weighs in on the president's nominee for CIA director, Gina Haspel, the decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, and why he believes Kim Jong-un is very unlikely to give up his nukes. Plus, the advice he gives those considering a job in the administration, does the president's Twitter addiction help our enemies, and the Russian FSB's nickname for men like Donald Trump, the useful idiot. Coming up with General Michael Hayden in just a moment. 
Michael Hayden is a retired United States Air Force four-star general and former director of the National Security Agency, principal deputy director of National Intelligence, and director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's currently a principal at the Chertoff Group, a distinguished visiting professor at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government, and the founder of the Hayden Center for Intelligence Policy and International Security at George Mason. He's been a vocal critic of President Trump's attacks on the law enforcement and intelligence communities, and he talks about it in a new book titled The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. General Hayden, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. The assault on intelligence, which I took as a pun in the sense that, yep. you know, Trump sort of insults all of our intelligence when he asks us to believe things like uh, he had no knowledge of hush money payments to his own mistress or <laughs> tries to browbeat us into believing objective falsehoods. But more specifically, you're talking about his attacks on the intelligence community and career intelligence professionals like yourself. Certainly, we've had presidents in the past who were skeptical or even distrustful of the intelligence community, such as Richard Nixon. But I have a hard time coming up with something comparable to what we're seeing right now. Is this unprecedented? That's the point I try to make in, in the book, Ben. And, and, and to, to be fair to the president, I mean, it's a broader societal trend, this kind of mm -hmm. post-truth era in which we all seem to be trending to be making decisions less on evidence and data and more on feeling, emotion, preference, tribe, loyalty, grievance, all right? Um, the yeah. president identified it as a candidate, exploited it masterfully, and now as president, he seems to be making it worse by some of the things he does, a lot of the things he says. And and, and so I, th I think that's the, the, the broader phenomenon. Now, you're right. I actually specifically say in the book, we've had presidents who have lied in the past, we have had presidents who have argued with us about what it is we're trying to tell him. But there's a difference here. This this seems to be a president who, how to put this, Ben, who, whose departure point for making decisions frequently seems to be something other than anyone's view of objective reality. It's just mm. that it doesn't matter. Um, I'm trying to think of of concrete examples. The, the one that really struck me is early in the administration, remember the Muslim, not a Muslim ban, pays your money, takes your choice yeah. on the title, but recall that going out the door about eight days into the administration. That was based upon campaign rhetoric of an apocalyptic threat to the country from refugees and an absolutely dystopian vetting system, neither of which were true. And anybody who had any experience could tell you that it, neither of those were true. And it's not surprising. I count them up in the book, Ben. Five former directors or acting directors of CIA, two deputy directors, a director of national intelligence, and a head of the National Counterterrorism Center all go online as part of an amicus brief to the court saying, that's just not right. But you had this very dramatic action done for reasons other than departing from an objective evaluation of threat. That's what I mean by post-truthism. Yeah, and I think that you said in the book that the Muslim ban actually jeopardizes the intelligence community's relationships with sources in the Middle East that we're relying on, right? Across the board. Number, three or four levels of concern, which is why we all kind of signed up. Mo, by the way, you can't find anyone in our old positions who has actually spoken up and saying, yeah, this ban's a good idea. I mean, <laughs> <clears throat> I, understand, I understand their silence, all right? But it's quite telling 
that's all you get from from them is silence. So multiple levels. Number one, the process. Oh my God, uh, we should not regularize making decisions like this. Number two, it falls unevenly on the world's least fortunate. Number three, it lives literally lives the narrative of groups within Islam who want to destroy us, ISIS and Al Qaeda, whose narrative is undying enmity between Islam and the and the West. And then finally, at the tactical level, you're right. We have more success recruiting someone to be a source that we were just shooting at than we do someone whose whole society, tribe, had just been insulted by the United States. Now, since the 2016 election, you say that you've been reminded a lot of your time as an intelligence officer in Sarajevo back in 1994. Tell us why that's yeah. so chilling. Yeah, so I begin the book with a walkthrough, reminiscences of a walk through Sarajevo at the height of the war there. And you could tell that this had been a beautiful, vibrant, multicultural city. And then you looked up in the hills and all you could see were Serbian artillery tubes. And you wondered what manner of man could pull the lanyard and start showing his former neighbors. But what struck me the most, Ben, as I walked through Sarajevo and met Sarajevans, was not how much different from us they were, but how much they weren't. Hmm. And the thought struck me that the veneer of civilization on which we all depend is actually quite thin. You realize that 10 years before I did that walk through ravaged Sarajevo, that city had hosted the Winter Olympics and, and it had yeah. been a, a center for, for, you know, for international getting together. And, and now we had this. And so, you know, I, I make the point, look, I'm not predicting imminent societal demise here in America. <laughs> but we shouldn't take these things for granted either. And that was my point. Now, before we go deeper into the relationship between President Trump and the intelligence community, just for a reference point, discuss what that relationship was like under the presidents you served. Yeah, so uh, mostly under President Bush, all right? And I need to card, turn cards face up, for whom I continue to have some measure of affection and certainly respect. <laughs> a little bit under President Obama, um, not very long, uh, but I did have a chance to brief him. So a couple of general observations. N number one, we have to accommodate to the president. President Obama learned in the quiet movement, in, in, moment, in, in the reflection, in the reading. President Bush learned in the conversation. Okay, well, we can adjust to that. Um, we have to respond to the president's priorities. What does he believe is most important? What is it he wants to get done? And, and, I, and I, I guess I point out that we're rarely been a syllogism where we mm -hmm. go in there and say, whereas, whereas, and the president says, well, heck, therefore, we, on a good day, what it is we do, based upon our best view of reality, is to create the left and right-hand boundaries for legitimate policy discussion. All right. Yeah. That's what we get to do. And, and what I see happening in the, in the Trump administration, and this is a constant struggle, and I hope things get better and, and are, you know, maybe are getting better. I don't know. But there seems to be a detachment between what the president decides and, and, and what these professionals are telling him about objective truth. Let me, just, let me just go to the headlines of the last 48 hours. All right. So we've walked away from the Iranian agreement. I know 
that current American intelligence is telling the president, one, the Iranians are not in material breach of the agreement. They're not cheating. Two, Iran is further away from a weapon because of this agreement than they would be without it. Three, we know more about the Iranian program because of this agreement than we would know about the, the Iranian program without the agreement. And yet, we just walked away from the agreement. It's not so much that the president argued about those points. He didn't. They just didn't enter into his decision-making, mm -hmm. hence my theory post-truth. Something other than data, something other than evidence, creating the stimulus to action. He just doesn't seem to have the ability to reevaluate his positions to take into account new information and advice from actual experts. At times, it seems that every single decision he makes simply boils down to whatever Obama did, I'm going to do the mirror opposite, regardless of whether it makes strategic well, sense or good policy. Two points. Number one, you're right about the second one. All right. If you if, if, if I'm a foreign intelligence officer and my prime minister is saying I'm having trouble making sense here, what do you think is the key indicator of what President Trump will do? And, I'm, and I would say, oh, that's easy. Just figure out what President Obama wanted to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> you, you know, just turn it on its head. You're done. And that's that's Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. It's Paris. It's the Iranian deal. It's red lines. I mean, it it adds up. And, and so that's an important point. Now, to give the president credit, this president credit, uh, he did approach the decision in Afghanistan with what I would call regular order. And he gave a speech about eight, nine months ago at Fort Myer in Virginia in which he began, my instinct was to leave. I generally follow my instincts. But, and then he talked about what you and I would call the regular order of government mm -hmm. suggesting things to him. And he actually made a decision that uh, I, I think we would call, for want of a better word, normal. Yeah. Oh, we, we may be right, maybe wrong. We can we can argue about it, but it was in the it, it was in the lane, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, and I would say to some extent Syria as well. How do you see his breaking the Iran nuclear deal impacting his budding romance with Kim Jong Un in this upcoming summit? So the administration has one storyline. A lot of other folks, myself included, have another one. So the administration's storyline is that's messaging Kim that. Uh, I'm going to be tough in the negotiations. Don't think you're going to get a sweetheart deal like this other one. <laughs> My line is, Kim's just been told that deals with the Americans aren't very permanent. Mm -hmm. Deals with the Americans can can be changed. And and so it, it can cut both ways, but I've already suggested to you which way I think it will mm -hmm. cut. I think it makes it harder to, to get Kim to yes in, in a way that he has confidence that he can make any concessions. And I think you say that regardless of this latest development, you're skeptical that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear status. Why is that? Let me begin, Ben, by saying I hope I'm absolutely wrong and that we actually end up in a place where we truly do denuclearize. But denuclearization for Kim means something different than it does to us. For him, when he says denuclearization, he talked about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which means to a first order, getting rid of the nuclear power that's on the peninsula right now, the Americans. And, and, and so one hopes that we can begin a process in Singapore in a, in a month or so that, that gets us to some meaningful reduction, stability, transparency, and so on. But back to the intelligence, 
Ben, the intelligence estimate is that Kim views the possession of nuclear weapons as essential to regime survival. And, And so one wonders, does that intelligence position inform the American policy line? Does it inform our going in position? Does it inform our expectations for these talks? I have to wonder, because I assume that you're still in touch with many people in the intelligence community. What are you hearing from them? Well, don't don't want to break confidences, all right? So let me tell you what it is I tell them, all right? And, And what I tell them is, you know how to count. You know how the Electoral College works. This man's the president. Go serve the president. Make the president better. Mm-hmm. Make the president more successful. All right? But, but, then, but then I add, but these are very unusual times. And, and we, have, we have this, the things you and I have already talked about, Ben, in terms of this disconnect between what seems to be objective reality and some decision-making. And again, I'm, I'm happy to debate objective reality, but that doesn't seem what's going on. It's just ignoring it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I tell folks, do your job. Make the president better than he would otherwise be. But, but then I advise, but protect yourself, all right? Guard your own integrity. You might want to write things down a little more than you have in the past. And if you feel so inclined, keep that letter in the lower right-hand desk drawer. And, and, then, and then I get to the real punchline, which is preserving personal integrity is something we always expect of ourselves. But you guys have a greater responsibility. And that's protecting your institution. Now, right now, that applies probably more dramatically to FBI and the Department of Justice, but it could in- apply to the intelligence community as as well. And so, as I said before, Ben, we always accommodate presidents, all right? But there are limits to how far you can accommodate them. And, and so you cannot accommodate any president to a degree that begins to undercut the legitimacy of the institution in the eyes of the institution, the American people, or the next president. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to stand your ground. And when so many people in your field have spoken out against President Trump or refused to take part in his administration, isn't there a danger that a feckless president may have little choice left other than to surround himself with equally incompetent advisors and lightweights like Michael Flynn, who you say few people in the IC had very much respect for. Well, I, I don't know if respect would be the right word, but he, I don't think many folks thought he was a good fit for that job, okay. the national security security advisor job. Mike has done some wonderf- wonderful things, but not in that kind of, mm-hmm. that kind of position. So, so Ben, you bring up a great dilemma. And so I, I tell a story in the book of a pretty senior guy who called me up and said, hey, I I think I might be on a short list for a very important position. What do you think? And my answer to him, and this was fairly early in the administration, my answer to him was, well, you know, two months ago, I'd have said, go do your duty. A month ago, I'd have said, "Uh, let's have breakfast. Now I'm just telling you, I don't think you ought to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you'll be frustrated. It's a very senior, a political appointee. This is not working for the government. This is a political appointee level. I said, I think you'll be frustrated. I I don't know that you'll have much impact. You'll be very uh, disappointed. You'll probably leave early. And you've got your own reputation to take care of, too, because you're a young man. You're going to get to do this again. And so that was my advice. And and Ben, that's, that's really hard. The most difficult part of the book to write 
was when I was, I was talking about H.R. McMaster and John Kelly and, and Tom Bossert and others who were really wonderful people. And we all owe them a great debt of gratitude for doing what they're doing. But you know as well as I, two of the three are gone now, but all three have had their reputation suffer yeah. by being affiliated with the administration and, frankly, for some of the things they've had to say for the on behalf of the administration. And, and, and then I, I, I add a, a very telling point, I think, at the end. And again, this is the part of the book I rewrote most because I have a great deal of respect for these people. But I asked the question, at what point do you stop being a guardrail mm-hmm. and, become, and become an enabler and a legitimizer? And then I think I end the chapter with something, but then what do we do if they leave? So there you have it. Yeah. That's the dilemma. Yeah, I, I suppose that the, in the first months of the administration, you could have gone into it and taken a position with some degree of cautious optimism. But at this point, right. anyone who accepts a position has to know that sooner or later, they're going to be completely humiliated. Well, you know, it, it's I've worked in the West Wing. I've worked in the office of the president. Um, it's hard when it's just straight up day work. And I just can't imagine what it must be like given everything that's going on now Mm -hmm. in American political life. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with General Michael Hayden when we come back in just a minute. Hey, folks, let me tell you about a company I love. We use them for our 800 number, and if you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, you really need to know about Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local toll-free and vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out running errands, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding to make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com kick to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com kick. And now, back to the podcast. Especially for analysts who dedicate their entire life to providing the commander in chief with the most accurate intelligence and advice grounded in reality. You know, they're dealing with a president who doesn't just ignore objective facts, but seems to make major policy decisions in spite of the facts. That has to be wildly demoralizing to know that your hard work will almost certainly fall on deaf ears. So so I, I, I talk in the book. I try to address this, and I talked to a very senior fellow, recently retired, whose judgment I trust and kind of an iconic figure inside the community. And here's what he told me, Ben. I say, you know, to answer to the question, so what are people thinking? And he said to me, he says, look, Mike, you know, nothing in life is binary or mannequin. It's not black and white, but there are shades. So I, I can tell you this. Everybody below decks, you know, the kind, Ben, you expect to have an oar in their hand and should be rowing. 
He said, everyone below decks, and oh, by the way, that's the younger group. They're, they're more newsies, okay, and they, more of them get their news from social media. Everyone below decks are asking more frequently than I've ever heard in the past, am I still part of a good thing? Wow. And then he went on to say, he went on to say, everybody above decks, you know, the, the more senior folks. The question I hear from them more often, again, remember this, not binary, but the question I'm hearing more often than I've heard in the past is, does this matter? Does what I do make a difference? Wow. Now, one of the aspects of the relationship between the president and the intelligence community is the president's daily brief and specifically the in-person briefing and the interaction that the president has with some representative of the intelligence community every morning. What is that like under Donald Trump from what you've heard? So it's from what I've heard. I've, I've not been in the room, and, 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 I, and I admit in the book that um, most of what I've learned tracks to earlier rather than later in the administration. Mm-hmm. So one hopes, you know, as everyone kind of hits stride, it gets better. But it's been described as um, hopping around, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that uh, you don't stay on topic a lot. You, you, you go from the intel point to somebody talking about the news, to somebody talking about policy, to somebody going to the news, to getting back to the intel brief. I had I had one one person who had actually been in the room said, if you had recorded this and transcribed it, it would read, it would read like a James Joyce novel. <laughs> and I think that you said in the book that the common refrain in the IC is, quote, do you think he got that? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which, which, you know, to be fair, we, we, is a question that occurs in other administrations too. Sure. But here, here is a president with an almost preternatural self-confidence in his own instincts and spontaneous reactions and his own a priori knowledge of how he thinks the world works. Mm-hmm. And so you, 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 you hit him with uh, some particular narrative and, and you just don't know, was it good enough to dislodge what he had had before it. And what concerns me most, Ben, is that he freely admits he wasn't a student of this all of his life. All right? Right. I mean, he, he, he freely admits he, he doesn't read a lot. And so if he's got these impressions of different things, and I think the one that seems most unshakable is his view of Russia and Vladimir Putin. What, what do you have to say to get him off of that? <laughs> yeah, and another one that I found kind of weird in this book is you talk about his obsession with the CIA to the exclusion of all the, the 15 yeah. other agencies that comprise the intelligence community. What are the kind of things that he may be missing by fixating on that one component of the equation? So, that, yeah, that's a great point. And, and it, it actually gives me, a, it gives me a chance here to kind of tee up what I think is the migration. Mm-hmm in the president's relationship with intelligence. And here I'm indebted to John McLaughlin, former acting director of CIA. John says our relationship with this president has gone through four phases. Phase one, the one you just hit, Ben, quite accurately, was ignorance. He really doesn't know much about the community. And so there was an instinct early on to equate CIA, which is kind of the public image of the community, with being the whole community. Yeah. And, and to the degree the president does that, 
what you suggest is right. It creates this kind of structural imbalance because CIA is no longer the head of the community. Right? That's the director of national intelligence. So he went through this period of ignorance, and then we slipped over into this extended period. By the way, the periods overlap, and right now they're all coexisting. Uh, we went into a second period where it was raw hostility, and that was all anchored on the Russia thing, All right, in which the president, uh, again, not arguing the facts of the case, but in the best post-truth style, simply trying to delegitimize those who would question or oppose him. And that's really important. Hence, you got Nazis and intelligence in quotes and political hacks and so on. Then we get to the third phase. And again, remember, they all continue. We get to the third phase with, that John calls inevitability. Kind of figure out that I actually got to talk to these guys. They know stuff I need to know. And so we're now in this phase of inevitability, which we've already suggested is, you know, not quite the same as it's been with other presidents. And then John predicts phase four. Phase four is what happens after Bob Mueller reports out. And, and there, uh, I, I do think we're we're in for some white water. Yeah, and before we get into the Russian election interference, first tell us what was the overwhelming thinking with regard to Russia during your tenure at CIA and NSA? I'm the first one to volunteer for the re-education camp. Um, <laughs> I didn't... Uh, I didn't pay as much attention to Russia as I should have. Now, in extenuation, you know, I was focused on counterterrorism and counterproliferation. Right. This is 06, 07, 08. All right. Uh, but in retrospect, we all should have been paying more attention to the Russians. And so I think we kind of let them slip the leash a little bit so that when Putin comes back and in his second run as president after the Medvedev interlude, uh, he's He's coming at us in the West pretty strongly. And, and I think we were a little late to warn in the second Obama administration. And I think it's fair to say the Obama guys were a little late to respond, mm -hmm. even after we got, we got to warning. And then we get a new president who just seems very challenged to accept Russia as a threat. And here we are. Now, in fairness to you, I will say that you were focused on cyber 20 years ago when you took over the Air Force oh, Intelligence yeah. Agency. Right. Um, in fact, you right. say back then the big debate was whether we wanted to be in the cyber business or the information dominance business. Right. First of all, for, for us civilians, what's the difference between the two and yeah. what have been the ramifications mm -hmm. of that choice? Yeah. Great, great question. And it actually plays out to be very important. So back in Texas in the mid to late 90s, I take over a unit. We are pretty much cutting-edge cyber. You'd expect the Air Force to kind of be up on that game. And we had a grand debate that I describe in the book as rivaling a theological debate at a medieval university. I mean, it was really intense. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the distinction was, are we in the cyber dominance business or the information dominance business? Cyber dominance is all that computer network stuff, uh, kind of mm -hmm. computer network defense, attacking other people's networks, stealing other people's information. Or are we in the information dominance business, which, which is all the computer stuff plus deception, public diplomacy, psychological operations, and so on. And, and frankly, we kind of decided, now nah, we're in the computer business. Uh, number one, that's hard enough, and this other stuff looks really complicated. And to be honest, Ben, you can't get very far in that information dominance bubble in American law 
before you start start bumping into the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and so on. Yeah. So we kind of focused on cyber dominance, which is why we got a cyber command up the road for me now. The Russians went to door number two. The Russians went to information dominance, and they did it uh, quite publicly. There's an article written by the fellow who's now chief of the Russian general staff, Valery Gerasimov, who talked about contactless warfare, using informational means to achieve objectives by affecting the adversary's population. And the Russians have gotten pretty good at that. They bubbled, is the phrase I would use. They bubbled their own population so that Putin can stay in power. Then they bubbled the Ukrainian and European population during the the grab of the Crimea. They took their show on the road and began to mess about the American information space in 2014 and 15 with some success. I mentioned one in the book called Jade Helm 15, which is its own subplot. And then it appears they decided, you know, we we can go for the gold here. We can work to try to delegitimize um, the American election process in the eyes of the American people. And that's what they did in 2016. And apparently at least one man was sounding the alarm on this at least two years before the election, Clint Watts. Clint Watts was, yeah. Clint had it. He had it nailed, but he didn't get much of an audience. What was he seeing that presaged this Russian attack? So, so Clint was doing work for the government on ISIS. Remember, the ISIS use of social media was quite troubling. And as he's yeah. doing his research, he's, he's seeing this other network out there that seemed to be sympathetic to ISIS but was separate, seemed more tied to Russian origins, although it was American-facing. And, and Clint began to conclude, this looks like the old Russian active measures on steroids inside social media. And he he links me up with this Jade Helm 15 phenomenon. Jade Helm was an exercise by American special operations in Texas and some other southern and western states, pretty vanilla exercise, right. that Russian bots and the American alt-right media, and, and there is an unhappy alliance here between the two, not formal, but they echo one another, began to say this wasn't an exercise. This was that guy, Barack Obama, declaring martial law and rounding up political opponents. Now, that sounds weird just in my saying it, but but it actually stirred up many people in the Southwest, so much so that in Texas, the government had to call out something called the State Guard, which is kind of a volunteer organization under the Texas military department to keep an eye on the feds as they were exercising (laughs) because the bots and the alt-right media were claiming abandoned Walmarts were going to be used as concentration camps. People had seen boxcars transiting Texas with leg irons on the floor. I mean, that, yeah, it sounds fantastical, but you had a lot of people that there, there there was, as I say, a disturbance in the force in Texas Mm -hmm. Because of it. And Clint's conclusion was at that point, the Russians said, okay, we can work these guys. And they then began uh, the long-term assault on, again, the confidence we have in our electoral processes. 
You were talking a moment ago about how the Russian hackers and the alt-right media seem to be echoing this uh, conspiracy theory in unison. Yeah. You know, I imagine having had such a long career in the intelligence community, even though your job is based on facts, you probably have a pretty good BS detector, General Hayden. <laughs> you try, yeah, uh, actually, yeah, you kind of read it and go, nah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, and, and <laughs> right. from your perspective, right. this convergence between the Russian attacks, the alt-right media, and the Trump campaign on a range of messages during the election, most strikingly this false narrative that the election was going to be rigged against right. Trump. Yeah. Isn't that a little strange to you? It's, it's beyond strange. It, it really is troubling. And, and again, and again, Ben, this is not... Mike Hayden trying to predict the results of the Mueller investigation. All right. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me for a moment be, be right. indifferent with regard to co collusion. The word I used is convergence. You know, mm -hmm. I, I can understand this. I can believe a scenario in which they all did it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. But the sum total was to reinforce each other's effects in undermining confidence in our own de democracy. Yeah. It, it, I have a line in the book. It's actually pretty strong. But I, I I left it in there pretty pretty naked that <laughs> in many okay. in many instances um, Trump speaks and the Russians amplify. I, I trust you and I trust others in the intelligence community and law enforcement when they say that these attacks had Russian fingerprints all over them. But when pressed for proof of Russian interference, when I'm in a conversation with someone. I have to admit that I don't know what the proof is right. that Russia was actually behind the social media influence, the DNC yeah. hacks, the hacks of voter registrations. How do we know that it was Russia? What's the, what's the proof? So I have something that I'm armed with here. Right. So you, so you got work actually done in the private sector now by folks like Clint Watts. There's another thing mm -hmm. I reference in the book called Hamilton 68, which is a live dashboard of what Russian-facing botnets are trending with. What are their hashtags? And oh, you know, oh, by the way, after the president's speech in Alabama about the NFL and the national anthem, the trending right. hashtag, the trending hashtags were take a knee and the NFL. All right. So back to the <laughs> echoing of of one another. So I think I think there's a good body of publicly available information that, that makes this very, very convincing. Now, that said, you know, the intelligence community assessment back in January of 17, uh, that said the Russians did it, and they did it first to mess with our heads and, and then to, to punish Hillary Clinton because Putin hates her, then to weaken the inevitable Clinton presidency, and then they decided maybe this other guy could win, so let's help. Um, it's hard to project the data behind that assessment because, frankly, Ben, that's got to be based on our being behind the screen, if you know what I mean. You know, right. that's and, and, and so now you're beginning to implicate really serious uh, sources and methods problems. But, you know, yeah, but let me let me revisit this. Just to give you another sense of comfort. Um, Donald Trump's intelligence community leadership says what I just told you, not just Barack Obama's. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you think Vladimir Putin views Donald Trump? Does he respect him? Does he see him as a true ally, a marriage of convenience, or does he just see him as a pawn? I, I, I think he views him the way KGB officers view a lot of people, as someone to be as someone to be manipulated. I just need to know what approach to take with him. Hmm. And and I, I think and, and I, I think with President Trump, ego ego's not bad. All right. Mm -hmm. And 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 so you have this kind of 
mutual admiration society uh, between um, Putin uh, and and the president. Uh, I, I think I think there there are other things that that he might use too again to try to influence the president in a direction. Now, now I have to admit, <clears throat> you know, we, we kind of have a rule of thumb back at CIA. Um, there are more tears shed over successful covert actions than there are over unsuccessful ones. And what the Russians did was, in essence, a covert influence campaign, uh, a version mm-hmm. of, of covert action. And if their objective was to get someone to be the American president so that there there would be a friendly America towards Russia, how's that working out? <laughs> All right. We are further and further away uh, because— yeah. American intelligence has put this story out. So whatever it is the president may or may not want to do, he can't because of the generalized American view of what the Russians did to us. Another thing that I've wondered is, do you think Trump's Twitter habit is dangerous in the sense that it's kind of doing the work for foreign intelligence analysts and profilers by giving our enemies a window into the Trump id, what sets him off, what buttons they can push? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll come at that question on two levels, and 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 just gotta admit at the beginning, maybe I've got this wrong, maybe that's the new normal, <laughs> but this traditional guy sees sees a problem with this in in two ways. Number one, the rest of the world pays very close attention to what the president of the United States says, mm-hmm. and and when and when the president's tweets create confusion. That may enjoy some tactical advantage, but strategically, it is very, very dangerous. Secondly, and, and, and specifically, we spend a lot of money at CIA creating what we call personality profiles of foreign leaders. You know, what makes them tick? Where are their buttons? Yeah. Where are their soft spots? And so on. We, we actually work hard to get that. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> has to work hard to get that on this president. Yeah. I mean, you, you know his buttons. You, you know his instincts. You even know his sleep patterns based, <laughs> upon, based upon his tweeting. You're one of a number of people from the intelligence community who have been making the rounds on the cable news circuit and speaking out more publicly against the president. Do you worry that the more you publicly push back against him, the more it feeds this wild narrative that there's some kind of deep state conspiracy trying to sabotage him? Yeah, only every day, all right? <laughs> um, and, and so th- that's a challenge, okay? So, so number one, I, I, I really do, Ben, try to work hard to be respectful of the mm-hmm. office and of the man. I know how to count. I know how the Electoral College works, <laughs> okay? So he is, he is unarguably the legitimate president of the United States, and I, both personally and professionally, I, I, I wish him well. Mm-hmm. And so well, the challenge folks like me have is that we actually think the concern here is that this is a very norm-busting president. And I, I think I can win that argument in front of any neutral audience. But in pushing back against this president's norm-busting, I have to be very careful. I don't bust my own norms, mm-hmm. that, that I'm not casual with the legitimate president of the United States, that I'm not disrespectful of the legitimate president of the United States within the intelligence community that I don't marshal arguments with information that should not be made public. All right. That I, you know, that, that, that we don't leak our, our information that that other professions have the same problem. I think journalism tries to point out when, when the president is, is, is straying from objective truth, but 
journalism has to be careful that they just don't become obsessed with that mm-hmm. and, 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 and report other important news stories so that journalism isn't viewed as not a free press, but as the opposition or the resistance. And, and, and so I think those who are concerned, I think we have legitimate concerns and good arguments, need to be careful that we don't feed that issue you just said. In my case, this is just a deep state pushing back against the democratically elected president. Well, I imagine you've seen a lot in your time at CIA and NSA. In your experience, have you ever seen intelligence officers whose work was driven by their politics or some grudge against the commander in chief? Or do they they pretty well check their politics when they walk in the door? Look, we're we're all human beings. And and occasionally, I I suspect, you know, some element of our personality affects another element that it Mm -hmm. shouldn't. Okay. But but, but by and large, no, these are professionals. You, You know, one of the great strengths of the Republic is that when we change presidents and we change the intel community, that generally means at CIA you're changing one guy, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, and frankly, uh, that's all President Trump changed. <laughs> he, he, he brought in Mike Pompeo and let John Brennan go. And then Mike Pompeo <laughs> yeah. picked his own deputy. I mean, that was it. Yeah, That was all the change because we are expected to support the elected president, mm-hmm. and we do. And you've come out in support of President Trump's nominee to be your successor at CIA. I think she's a great choice. Uh, Yeah. As a career intelligence officer versus a politician, do you think that she could go some way toward repairing the president's relationship with the IC? I don't know about that. Okay, Okay. that's that's embedded in the personality of the president. That's more in the control of the president than Mm -hmm. it is of Gina. Yeah. What I why I want Gina in the room is the president. The longer we go, Ben the more he seems to surround himself with folks who think and talk like him. You know, and so I, I said on national TV a few days ago, I want Gina in that room when the president says something that's not true, but everyone else in the room goes into what I call north-south autobob. Oh, you're right, boss. You're right. <laughs> because Gina Haspel is the one who's going to say, Mr. President, can I have a private moment with you afterwards? And we'll give her, give him her and her agency's clearest view of objective truth. We can only hope. Before we go, in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that you actually hail from the heart of Trump country, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. (laughs) At some point, you even asked your brother to bring together a group of Trump supporters at a bar in Pittsburgh so you could talk to them and have a real conversation. And I paid for the the Iron City, too. (laughs) What did you learn in that conversation? I, I learned that these are still my friends and neighbors. Yeah. I learned that um, these people still support me in, in what I do. Uh, but I also learned that they work hard, go to church, send their kids to school, uh, go to the PTA, observe the law, pay their taxes, and feel as if not many people are paying attention to them. Yeah. Well, General Hayden, thank you so much for reminding us that truth still matters in this country. Once again, the book is called The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in the Age of Lies. General Michael Hayden, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks again to General Michael Hayden for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies on Amazon or Audible. And follow Michael Hayden on Twitter at at G-E-N-M Hayden. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. 
You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.